This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 3 Umbopa Enters Our Service it takes from four to five days, according to the speed of the vessel and the state of the weather, to run up from the Cape to Durban. Sometimes, if the landing is bad at East London, where they have not yet made that wonderful harbor they talk so much of and sink such a mint of money in, a ship is delayed for twenty-four hours before the cargo boats can get out to take off the goods. But on this occasion we had not to wait at all, for there were no breakers on the bar to speak of, and the tugs came out at once with the long strings of ugly flat-bottom boats behind them, into which the packages were bundled with a crash. It did not matter what they might be, over they went, slap-bang, whether they contained china or woolen goods they met with the same treatment. I saw one case holding four dozen of champagne smashed all to bits, and there was the champagne fizzing and boiling about in the bottom of the dirty cargo boat. It was a wicked waste, and evidently so the Kaffirs in the boat thought, for they found a couple of unbroken bottles, and knocking off the necks drank the contents. But they had not allowed for the expansion caused by the fizz and the wine, and feeling themselves swelling, rolled about in the bottom of the boat, calling out that the good liquor was Tokati, that was bewitched. I spoke to them from the vessel, and told them it was the white man's strongest medicine, and they were as good as dead men. Those Kaffirs went to shore in a very great fright, and I do not think they will touch champagne again. Well, all the time that we were steaming up to Natal, I was thinking over Sir Henry Curtis's offer. We did not speak any more on the subject for a day or two, though I told them many hunting yarns, all true ones. There is no need to tell lies about hunting, for so many curious things happen within the knowledge of a man whose business it is to hunt. But this is by the way. At last, one beautiful evening in January, which is our hottest month, we steamed past the coast of Natal, expecting to make Durban Point by sunset. It is a lovely coast all along from East London, with its red sand hills and wide sweeps of vivid green, dotted here and there with Kaffir kraals, and bordered by a ribbon of white surf, which sprouts up in pillars of foam where it hits the rocks. But just before you come to Durban, there is a peculiar richness about the landscape. There are the sheer kloofs cut in the hill by the rushing rains of centuries, down which the rivers sparkle. There is the deepest green of the bush, growing as God planted it, and the other greens of the mealy gardens and the sugar patches while now and again a white house, smiling out at the placid sea, puts a finish and gives an air of homeliness to the scene. For to my mind, however beautiful a view may be, it requires the presence of man to make it complete. 
but perhaps that is because I have lived so much in the wilderness and therefore know the value of civilization, though to be sure it drives away the game. The Garden of Eden, no doubt, looked fair before man was, but I always think that it must have been fairer when Eve adorned it. To return, we had miscalculated a little, and the sun was well down before we dropped anchor off the point, and heard the gun which told the good folks of Durban that the English mail was in. It was too late to think of getting over the bar that night, so we went comfortably to dinner, after seeing the mails carried off in the lifeboat. When we came up again, the moon was out, and shining so brightly over sea and shore that she almost paled the quick, large flashes from the lighthouse. From the shore floated sweet, spicy odors that always remind me of hymns and missionaries, and in the windows of the houses on the Berea sparkled a hundred lights. From a large brig lying near also came the music of the sailors as they worked at getting the anchor up in order to be ready for the wind. Altogether it was a perfect night, such a night as you sometimes get in southern Africa, and it threw a garment of peace over everybody, as the moon threw a garment of silver over everything. Even the great bulldog belonging to a sporting passenger seemed to yield to its gentle influence, and forgetting his yearning to come to close quarters with the baboon in a cage on the forecastle, snored happily at the door of the cabin, dreaming no doubt that he had finished him, and happy in his dream. We three, that is, Sir Henry Curtis, Captain Good, and myself, went and sat by the wheel and were quiet for a while. Well, Mr. Quatermain, said Sir Henry presently, have you been thinking about my proposals? I echoed Captain Good. What do you think of them, Mr. Quatermain? I hope that you are going to give us the pleasure of your company so far as Solomon's Mines or wherever the gentleman you knew as Neville may have got to. Yes, gentlemen, I said, sitting down again. I will go, and by your leave I will tell you why and on what conditions. First, for the terms which I ask. One, you are to pay all expenses and any ivory or other valuables we may get is to divide it between Captain Good and myself. Two, that you give me five hundred pounds for my services on the trip before we start, I undertaking to serve you faithfully till you choose to abandon the enterprise or till we succeed or disaster overtakes us. Three, that before we trek you execute a deed agreeing in the event of my death or disablement to pay my boy Harry, who is studying medicine over there in London at Guy's Hospital, a sum of £200 a year for five years, by which time he ought to be able to earn a living for himself if he is worth his salt. That is all, I think, and I dare say you will quite say enough, too. No, answered Sir Henry, I accept them gladly. I am bent upon this project, and would pay more than that for your help, considering the peculiar and exclusive knowledge which you possess. 
Pity I did not ask it then, but I won't go back on my word. And now that I have got my terms, I will tell you my reasons for making up my mind to go. First of all, gentlemen, I have been observing you both for the last few days, and if you will not think me impertinent, I may say that I like you, and believe that we shall come up well to the yoke together. That is something, let me tell you, when one has a long journey like this before one. And now, as to the journey itself, I tell you flatly, Sir Henry and Captain Good, that I do not think it probable we can come out of it alive. That is, if we attempt to cross the Suleiman Mountains. What was the fate of the old Dom da Silvestre three hundred years ago? What was the fate of his descendant twenty years ago? What has been your brother's fate? I tell you frankly, gentlemen, that as their fates were, so I believe ours will be. I paused to watch the effect of my words. Captain Good looked a little uncomfortable, but Sir Henry's face did not change. We must take our chance, he said. You may perhaps wonder, I went on, why, if I think this, I, who am, as I told you, a timid man, should undertake such a journey. It is for two reasons. First, I am a fatalist, and believe that my time is appointed to come quite without reference to my own movements and will, and that if I am to go to Suleiman's mountains to be killed, I shall go there and shall be killed. God Almighty, no doubt, knows his mind about me, so I need not trouble on that point. Secondly, I am a poor man. For nearly forty years I have hunted and traded, but I have never made more than a living. Well, gentlemen, I don't know if you are aware that the average life of an elephant hunter, from the time he takes to the trade, is between four and five years. So you see, I have lived through about seven generations of my class, and I should think that my time cannot be far off anyway. Now, if anything were to happen to me in the ordinary course of business, by the time my debts are paid, there would be nothing left to support my son Harry whilst he was getting in the way of earning a living, whereas now he will be set up for five years. That is the whole affair in a nutshell. Mr. Quartermain, said Sir Henry, who had been giving me his most serious attention, your motives for undertaking an enterprise which you believe can only end in disaster reflect a great deal of credit on you. Whether or not you are right, of course, time and the event alone can show, but whether you are right or wrong, I may as well tell you at once that I am going through with it to the end, sweet or bitter. If we are to be knocked on the head, all I have to say is that I hope we get a little shooting first. Eh, good? Yes, yes, put in the captain. We have all three of us been accustomed to face danger and to hold our lives in our hands in various ways. So it is no good turning back now. And now I vote we go down to the saloon and take an observation just for luck, you know. And we did, through the bottom of a tumbler. Next day we went ashore, and I put up Sir Henry and Captain Good at the little shanty I have built on the Berea, 
and which I call my home. There are only three rooms and a kitchen in it, and it is constructed of green brick with a galvanized iron roof. But there is a good garden with the best loquat trees in it that I know, and some nice young mangoes of which I hope great things. The curator of the botanical gardens gave them to me. It is looked after by an old hunter of mine named Jack, whose thigh was so badly broken by a buffalo cow in Sikuklunis country that he will never hunt again. But he can potter about and garden, being a Griqua by birth. You will never persuade a Zulu to take much interest in gardening. It is a peaceful art, and peaceful arts are not in his line. Sir Henry and Good slept in a tent pitched in my little grove of orange trees at the end of the garden, for there was no room for them in the house, and what with the smell of the bloom and the sight of the green and golden fruit, in Durban you will see all three on the tree together, I dare say it is a pleasant place enough, for we have few mosquitoes here on the Berea, unless there happens to come an unusually heavy rain. Well, to get on, for if I do not, Harry, you will be tired of my story before we ever fetch up at Suleiman's Mountains. Having once made up my mind to go, I set about making the necessary preparations. First, I secured the deed from Sir Henry, providing for you, my boy, in case of accidents. There was some difficulty about its legal execution, as Sir Henry was a stranger here and the property to be charged is over the water. But it was ultimately got over with the help of a lawyer, who charged twenty pounds for the job, a price that I thought outrageous. Then I pocketed my check for five hundred pounds. Having paid this tribute to my bump of caution, I purchased a wagon and a span of oxen on Sir Henry's behalf, and beauties they were. It was a twenty-two-foot wagon with iron axles, very strong, very light, and built throughout of stinkwood. Not quite a new one, having been to the diamond fields and back, but in my opinion all the better for that, for I could see that the wood was well seasoned. If anything is going to give in a wagon, or if there is green wood in it, it will show out on the first trip. This particular vehicle was what we call a half-tented wagon, that is to say, only covered in over the after twelve feet, leaving all the front part free for the necessaries we had to carry with us. In this after part were a hide cartel or bed, on which two people could sleep, also racks for rifles, and many other little conveniences. I gave a hundred and twenty-five pounds for it, and think that it was cheap at the price. Then I bought a beautiful team of twenty Zulu oxen, which I had kept my eye on for a year or two. Sixteen oxen is the usual number for a team, but I took four extra to allow for casualties. These Zulu cattle are small and light, not more than half the size of the Afrikander oxen, which are generally used for transport purposes but they will live where Afrikanders would starve, and with a moderate load can make five miles a day better going, being quicker and not so liable to become footsore. 
What is more, this lot were thoroughly salted, that is, they had worked all over South Africa, and so had become proof, comparatively speaking, against red water, which so frequently destroys whole teams of oxen when they get on to strange veldt or grass country. As for lungsick, which is a dreadful form of pneumonia, very prevalent in this country, they had all been inoculated against it. This is done by cutting a slit in the tail of an ox and binding in a piece of the diseased lung of an animal which has died of the sickness. The result is that the ox sickens, takes the disease in a mild form, which causes its tail to drop off, as a rule about a foot from the root, and becomes proof against future attacks. It seems cruel to rob the animal of his tail, especially in a country where there are so many flies, but it is better to sacrifice the tail and keep the ox than to lose both tail and ox, for a tail without an ox is not much good except to dust with. Still, it does look odd to trek along behind twenty stumps where there ought to be tails. It seems as though nature made a trifling mistake and stuck the stern ornaments of a lot of prized bulldogs onto the rumps of the oxen. Next came the question of provisioning and medicines, one which required the most careful consideration. For what we had to do was to avoid lumbering the wagon, and yet to take everything absolutely necessary. Fortunately, it turned out that good is a bit of a doctor, having at some point in his previous career managed to pass through a course of medical and surgical instruction, which he has more or less kept up. He is not, of course, qualified, but he knows more about it than many a man who can write M.D. after his name, as we found out afterwards. And he had a splendid traveling medicine chest and a set of instruments. While we at Durban, he cut off a Kaffir's big toe in a way which it was a pleasure to see. But he was quite nonplussed when the Kaffir, who had sat stolidly watching the operation, asked him to put on another, saying that a white one would do in a pinch. There remained, when these questions were satisfactorily settled, two further important points for consideration, namely that of arms and that of servants. As to the arms, I cannot do better than put down a list of those which we finally decided on from among the ample store that Sir Henry had brought with him from England, and those which I owned. I copy it from my pocketbook, where I made the entry at the time. Three heavy breech-loading double-eight elephant guns, weighing about 15 pounds each, to carry a charge of 11 drams of black powder. Two of these were by a well-known London firm, most excellent makers. But I do not know by whom mine, which is not so highly finished, was made. I have used it on several trips and shot a good many elephants with it, and it has always proved a most superior weapon, thoroughly to be relied on. Three double 500 expresses, 
constructed to stand a charge of six drams, sweet weapons, and admirable for medium-sized games such as eland or sable antelope, or for men, especially in an open country and with the semi-hollow bullet. One double number twelve central firekeeper's shotgun, full choke, both barrels. This gun proved of the greatest service to afterwards in shooting game for the pot. Three Winchester repeating rifles, not carbines, spare guns. Three single-action Colt's revolvers with the heavier or American pattern of cartridge. This was our total armament, and doubtless the reader will observe that the weapons of each class were of the same make and caliber, so that the cartridges were interchangeable, a very important point. I make no apology for detailing it at length, as every experienced hunter will know how vital a proper supply of guns and ammunition is to the success of an expedition. Now, as to the men who were to go with us. After much consultation, we decided that their number should be limited to five, namely a driver, a leader, and three servants. The driver and leader I found without much difficulty, two Zulus, named respectively Goza and Tom. But to get the servants proved a more difficult matter. It was necessary that they should be thoroughly trustworthy and brave men, as in a business of this sort our lives might depend upon their conduct. At last I secured two, one a Hottentot named Ventvogel, or Windbird, and one a little Zulu named Kiva, who had the merit of speaking English perfectly. Ventvogel I had known before. He was one of the most perfect sporers, that is, game trackers, I ever had to do with, and tough as whipcord. He never seemed to tire. But he had one failing, so common in his race, drink. Put him within reach of a bottle of gin, and you could not trust him. However, as we were going beyond the region of grog shops, this little weakness of his did not so much matter. Having secured these two men, I looked in vain for a third to suit my purpose. So we determined to start without one, trusting to luck to find a suitable man on our way up country. But, as it happened, on the evening before the day we had fixed for our departure, the Zulu Kiva informed me that a kefir was waiting to see me. Accordingly, when we had done dinner, for we were at the table at the time, I told Kiva to bring him in. Presently a tall, handsome-looking man, somewhere about thirty years of age, and very light-colored for a Zulu, entered, and lifting his knobstick by way of salute, squatted himself down in the corner on his haunches and sat silent. I did not take any notice of him for a while, for it is a great mistake to do so. If you rush into conversation at once, a Zulu is apt to think you are a person of little dignity or consequence. I observed, however, that he was a keshla, or ringed man. That is, he wore on his head the black ring made up of a species of gum polished with fat and worked up in the hair, 
which is usually assumed by Zulus on attaining a certain age or dignity. Also, it struck me that his face was familiar to me. Well, I said at last, what is your name? Umbopa, answered the man in a slow, deep voice. I have seen your face before. Yes, the Inkusi, the chief, my father, saw my face at the place of the little hand, that is, Isandwana, on the day before the battle. Then I remembered. I was one of Lord Chelmsford's guides in that unlucky Zulu war, and had the good fortune to leave the camp in charge of some wagons on the day before the battle. While I was waiting for the cattle to be inspanned, I fell into conversation with this man, who held some small command among the native auxiliaries, and he had expressed to me his doubts as to the safety of the camp. At the time I told him to hold his tongue and leave such matters to wiser heads, but afterwards I thought of his words. I remember, I said, what is it you want? It is this, Makumazan. That is my Kafir name, and means the man who gets up in the middle of the night, or, in vulgar English, he who keeps his eyes open. I hear that you go on a great expedition far into the north with the white chiefs from over the water. Is it a true word? It is. I hear that you go even to the Lukanga River, a moon's journey beyond the Manika country. Is this so also, Makumazan? Why do you ask whither we go? What is it to you? I answered suspiciously, for the objects of our journey had been kept a dead secret. It is this, O white men, that if indeed you travel so far, I would travel with you. There was a certain assumption of dignity in the man's mode of speech, and especially in his use of the words, O white men, instead of, O encosis, or chiefs, which struck me. You forget yourself a little, I said. Your words run out unawares. That is not the way to speak. What is your name, and where is your kraal? Tell us, that we may know with whom we have to deal. My name is Zumbopa. I am of the Zulu people, yet not of them. The house of my tribe is in the far north. It was left behind when the Zulus came down here a thousand years ago, long before Chaka reigned in Zululand. I have no kraal. I have wandered for many years. I came from the north as a child to Zululand. I was set the Wales man in the Nkuma Bakosi regiment, serving there under the great captain Umstopogasi of the Axe, who taught my hands to fight. Editor's Note For the history of Umstopogasi and his axe, the reader is referred to the books called Alan Quartermain and Nada the Lily. Afterwards, I ran away from Zululand and came to Natal because I wanted to see the white man's ways. 
Next I fought against Satawayo in the war. Since then I have been working in Natal. Now I am tired and would go north again. Here is not my place. I want no money, but I am a brave man and am worth my place and meat. I have spoken. I was rather puzzled by this man and his way of speech. It was evident to me from his manner that in the main he was telling the truth, but somehow he seemed different from the ordinary run of Zulus, and I rather mistrusted his offer to come without pay. Being in a difficulty, I translated his words to Sir Henry and Good and asked them their opinion. Sir Henry told me to ask him to stand up. Umbopa did so, at the same time slipping off the long military greatcoat which he wore, and revealing himself naked except for the muka around his center and a necklace of lion's claws. Certainly he was a magnificent-looking man. I never saw a finer native. Standing about six foot three high, he was broad in proportion, and very shapely. In that light, too, his skin looked scarcely more than dark, except here and there where deep black scars marked old Asagai wounds. Sir Henry walked up to him and looked into his proud, handsome face. They make a good pair, don't they, said Good, one as big as the other. I like your looks, Mr. Umbopa, and I will take you as my servant, said Sir Henry in English. Umbopa evidently understood him, for he answered in Zulu, It is well. And then he added, with a glance at the white man's great stature and breadth, We are men, thou and I. End of chapter 3